Hello and welcome to the introduction to Percy Bysshe Shelley and George Gordon Lord Byron. We're going to explore their radical politics, scandalous personal lives and the relationship between their poetry and that of Wordsworth and Coleridge. Along with John Keats, critics regard Shelley and Byron as the most important of the later Romantic poets. I've called them the next generation Star Trek style because they were born almost a full generation after Wordsworth and Coleridge. But it is worth reminding ourselves that it's not until later that critics begin to group all of these writers together under the label of Romantic poets. During their lifetimes, Shelley and Byron saw their own work as a reaction to Coleridge and Wordsworth's poetry as much as a continuation of it. But while critics only really began to explore the connections between the first and second generations of the Romantic poets in the 20th century, even contemporary critics of Shelley and Byron saw an affinity between these two writers, calling them the satanic school of poetry, a term invented by Robert Southey that was intended as a disparaging reference to their atheism, their unconventional lifestyles and the apparent immorality of their work. Shelley and Byron were indeed close friends and associates. Shelley was staying with Byron by the banks of Lake Geneva, for example, when his wife, Mary Shelley, began to write Frankenstein. We can also identify many similarities between their lives and work. Though both men were from aristocratic backgrounds, both held revolutionary political views, they bemoaned the condition of the poor in Britain and attacked Britain's increasingly right-wing politics. Shelley became an associate of the radical philosopher William Godwin, the husband of noted feminist Mary Wollstonecraft, while Byron supported textile workers' resistance to industrialisation at home and travelled abroad to fight tyranny in the Greek War of Independence as Greece strove to throw off the rule of the Ottoman Empire. Byron and Shelley also share similar attitudes to religion, attitudes that were as radical as their politics. Both Shelley and Byron were sceptical of established systems of belief, especially Christianity. While at Oxford, Shelley wrote a pamphlet called The Necessity of Atheism and was expelled for doing so. Both men are now known as much for their unconventional personal lives as for their writing. Shelley abandoned his young wife Harriet to elope with Godwin and Wollstonecraft's 17-year-old daughter Mary. Tragically, Harriet drowned herself two and a half years after Shelley abandoned her. Byron's life was equally eventful. Credited with inventing the Byronic hero, brooding, rebellious, isolated and passionate, such as his own Manfred or Wuthering Heights Heathcliff, Byron was seen to possess the qualities of the Byronic hero himself, most especially passion. Byron had numerous affairs with women and men, including one most shockingly with his half-sister, Augusta Lee. He fathered at least one illegitimate child, Allegra, and claimed in a span of a year and a half to have had 200 affairs while he was in Venice. His behaviour became so notorious in Britain that he was essentially forced into exile abroad in 1816. We can draw connections between Shelley and Byron in death as much as in life, and both died famously young, much like John Keats. Shelley was only 29 when he drowned in a boating accident in Italy, in a vessel named Don Juan after Byron's poem. 
Byron died at the age of only 36 after falling ill while fighting in Greece. The practice of bloodletting using leeches was a common medical treatment in this period, and many ascribe Byron's death to over-leeching. There are, of course, undoubtedly continuities between the works of Wordsworth, Coleridge, Shelley and Byron. From their shared politics, their engagement with the natural world, to, perhaps most importantly, the preeminence given to the imagination. Alongside these similarities, however, we also see generational conflict as the young men react against the older poets. By the time Shelley and Byron began publishing poetry, Wordsworth and Coleridge were no longer the youthful supporters of the French Revolution, as they had been in the 1790s. Instead, they had become pillars of the establishment. Their once radical politics had become conservative, and their once unorthodox religious attitudes had developed into a reverence for England's established Anglican Church. Shelley and Byron respond by satirising the older men, especially Wordsworth. Byron's Don Juan nicknames Wordsworth wordy, insinuating that Wordsworth's poetry is long-winded and a bit boring. While in letters, Byron referred to the poet as Turdsworth. If you're hearing echoes of 18th century satire here, you'd be right. Shelley was equally published about his dislike of Wordsworth. His poem, Peter Bell III, for example, is an explicit parody of Wordsworth's own poem, Peter Bell. The poem that we're reading to Wordsworth is more serious in tone, but it expresses the same disillusionment with the older poet. In this sonnet, Shelley attacks Wordsworth's increasingly reactionary political stance and dismisses his poetry as dull. As you read the poem, you'll want to think about how Shelley uses Wordsworth's own philosophy of poetry against him. But the differences between the first and second generation of Romantic poets are not just about politics. There are also key differences in the philosophical attitudes of Shelley's and Byron's poetry and those of Coleridge and Wordsworth. The Romantic poets were influenced by Edmund Burke's A Philosophical Inquiry into the Origin of Our Ideas of the Sublime and the Beautiful, published in 1757. Burke had identified two different qualities observable in nature, the sublime and the beautiful. According to Burke, the sublime is associated with the infinite, solitude, emptiness, darkness and terror, the beautiful with brightness, smoothness and smallness. If this difference between the sublime and the beautiful seems a little abstract to you, here's a video I recorded earlier in the year which I hope will help. I'm near the summit of Pikes Peak in Colorado and it's perhaps an area that some of you know well and I thought I'd make this little video, it's July, it's before semester starts but when we talk about sublime landscapes and we talk about the romantics it's these kind of landscapes that they're talking about landscapes that make us feel really small, they make us feel dwarfed they might even make us feel slightly nervous this is a landscape we have to be careful in because it's literally life-threatening while Wordsworth and Coleridge associate this terrifying, awe-inspiring quality of sublime landscapes with spiritual significance in their poetry, Shelley and Byron's poetry, in contrast, associate the sublime with vacancy. Instead of seeing the presence of a divine being, they see absence in the sublime. Instead then of finding spiritual sustenance in nature, as Coleridge's speaker does in Frost at Midnight then, 
poems such as Shelley's Mont Blanc and Byron's Darkness present a natural world and a universe that is godless and entirely indifferent to humanity's existence. But there is a second key philosophical difference between the first and second generation of Romantic poets. While Wordsworth and Coleridge had rejected classical culture much as William Blake did, both Shelley and Byron, like Keats, are influenced by classical Greek culture, especially Greek philosophy. This influence is partly political, as Shelley and Byron are especially drawn to democracy, which they see in ancient Greek culture. However, this Greek influence also has a bearing on their apprehension of human perception. Shelley is especially is drawn to the writing of the Greek philosopher Plato, who proposed the existence of two worlds. The ordinary imperfect world of mutability and change, which is the world that we live in, the world that we perceive with our senses, and a second world, an ideal world of perfect and eternal forms, of which we can grasp only very shadowy glimpses. Mutability is of course an, an expression of Platonism. The poem argues that human beings are limited to the ordinary world of mutability and change. Indeed, it suggests that the only permanence we can know is the permanence of impermanence. As Shelley puts it, not may endure, but mutability. This argument is in contrast to ideas expressed in Wordsworth's um, preface. If you think back to the preface, you'll remember that he frequently refers to the idea of, of permanence and connects poetry to this concept. He tells us that poetry is as immortal as the heart of man, that it is well adapted to interest mankind permanently. But there's a second important consequence of Shelley's Platonism. While Wordsworth had elevated subjective knowledge, especially that of the poet, Shelley's Platonism points instead to the limitations of human perception and understanding, as this second generation of Romantic poets begin to decenter humanity, even imagining its end, as Byron apparently does in Darkness. But perhaps the best example of this diminishment of humanity is not Byron's Darkness, but the image of the forgotten lyre or Aeolian harp in the second stanza of mutability. These harps, also known as wind harps, were placed in open windows and would make music when the wind blew over them. In comparing humanity to an Aeolian harp, Shelley moves away from the active imagination of Wordsworth's poet to suggest instead that we are merely passive recipients of sensory perception, an idea he repeats in the defence of poetry, in which he states, Man is an instrument over which a series of external and internal impressions are driven, like the alterations of an ever-changing wind over an Aeolian lyre. Well, that's our brief introduction to Shelley and Byron. As always, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Bye-bye. Hello and welcome to the introduction to John Keats. Like Shelley and Byron, Keats belongs to the second generation of Romantic poets. These men were all aware of each other's work and met on occasion. However, Keats was not a particularly close friend to either man. Even during their lifetime, Keats' poetry was not particularly associated with Shelley's and Byron's. 
Rather than being grouped with the satanic school of poetry, Keats contemporaries associated him with the so-called Cockney school. If you're not familiar with the term Cockney, it's a term used to describe lower-class Londoners from the city's East End. And if you've seen the original Mary Poppins, it's the accent that Dick Van Dyke attempts badly. Keats earned this nickname because, unlike Shelley and Byron, his background was relatively modest. He was impoverished throughout his life and spent some time training as an apothecary surgeon, what we would call a general practitioner. This social background made him somewhat of an outsider in literary circles and drew frequent snide comments from critics. One reviewer, for example, famously suggested that it is a better and wiser thing to be a starved apothecary than a starved poet, so back to the shop, Mr. John. The adjective Cockney, however, tells us something about more than Keats' class status. It also reminds us that Keats grew up in the city. Much of Keats' poetry dwells on nature, like many of the Romantic poets, but it's often a different kind of nature than that which appears in Wordsworth, Coleridge, Byron or Shelley. Keats didn't live by the mountains of the English Lake District, and until the very end of his life he didn't travel to Europe, so we don't find poems about the Alps, for example. Instead, the nature that Keats presents is often much more domesticated. His famous Ode to a Nightingale, for example, was inspired by hearing a nightingale outside Charles Brown's house in Hampstead, London. Even to Autumn is not about wild nature, but instead an agrarian landscape moulded by human beings. But perhaps the most important fact about Keats' life is his early death. He died of tuberculosis, aged only 25. Thanks to his medical training, Keats recognised the signs of illness early on, and he knew his death was inevitable. As a consequence, he applied himself to his art urgently, and wrote most of his best-known poems between January and September 1819, an astonishingly concentrated moment of poetic success. These poems include La Belle dans Merci and To Autumn. This very early death also contributed to the image of Keats that developed over the course of the 19th century. He became known as Poor Keats, a delicate, tragic, slightly effeminate figure. Shelley himself contributed to this image, describing Keats as a pale flower in Adonais. People even came to believe that a series of vicious reviews in 1818 had contributed to Keats' early death, prompting Byron to write mockingly that he had been snuffed out by an article. The 19th century image of Keats has had a long-lasting impact on the popular perception of him and of the Romantic poets more generally. As Henry Wallace's 1856 painting, The Death of Thomas Chatterton, illustrates. Chatterton was an 18th century poet who committed suicide at just 17. This painting captures the tragedy, delicacy and even femininity that began to be associated with the figure of the poet in the 19th century. But it's wrong to dismiss Keats simply as a tragic figure. He not only left an amazing body of poetry, but he made important contributions to arguments about poetry, challenging, in particular, some of Wordsworth's poetic practices. In particular, Keats challenged Wordsworth's understanding of the role of subjectivity in poetry, coining the term egotistical sublime to criticise, quote, what he felt to be the excessively self-centred quality of Wordsworth's poetry. Rather than focus poetry on the self of the poet, then, 
Keynes argued that the best poets efface themselves in their work. As he wrote to Richard Woodhouse, a poet is the most unpoetical of anything in existence because he has no identity. He is continually in for and filling some other body. Rather than the egotistical sublime then, Keats argued that truly great poets possess negative capability. In a letter to his brothers in December 1817, he writes, quote, How once it struck me what quality went to form a man of achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. I mean negative capability. That is when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. In Keats, we also see the same admiration for classical Greek culture that we see in Byron and Shelley. His sonnet on seeing the Elgin marbles describes his experience witnessing the Elgin marbles being unpacked at the British Museum. These marbles are the statues that originally adorned the Parthenon in Athens. They remain at the British Museum controversially to this day. Keats is also strongly drawn to classical poetic forms. He writes many odes, which are, quote, a lyric poem in elevated or high style, often addressed to a natural force, a person or an abstract quality. And he uses a classical form in particular, the Horatian Ode, when he does so. So a Horatian Ode uses stanzas of the same length and rhyme scheme. To Autumn, then, um, is a Horatian Ode. But it's also important for us to note that it's written in another classical tradition, the classical Georgic tradition. These are poems written about rural life and husbandry. And the term Georgic comes from Georgics, which was uh, a poem written by the Latin poet Virgil about agriculture. But importantly, Keats' poetry looks backwards, not just to classical culture, but also to medieval culture. And in this way, it anticipates what will become a recurrent subject for later 19th century writers. The second poem that we're reading, La Belle Dame Sans Merci, illustrates this interest in medieval subject matter. And it is romantic in the sense that Keats would have understood the term. If we turn to the OED, we'll discover that during Keats' lifetime, romance often meant a literary genre, and specifically a medieval narrative, originally in verse, later also in prose, relating the legendary or extraordinary adventures of some hero of chivalry. La Belle Dame Saint-Merci clearly adheres to this definition of romance. As a self-proclaimed ballad, it is a narrative poem or tale in verse. It also features a hero of chivalry, a knight. Furthermore, Keats even takes the title of this poem, which means the beautiful lady without pity, from an actual medieval poem by Elaine Chartier. This turn to medieval subject matter becomes very popular with Victorian writers and artists, and it's small wonder then that Keats's poem goes on to inspire a number of 19th century paintings. If Gray served as our bridge between neoclassical and romantic writing then, we can see Keats as a bridge of sorts between romantic and Victorian writing. And it is worth noting that if Keats had lived even to 60, we'd probably regard him as a Victorian, not as a romantic writer. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about Keats, I'd highly recommend Jane Campion's 2009 film Bright Star, starring Ben Wishaw and Abby Cornish. This film focuses on Keats' relationship with the young woman he fell in love with, the 18-year-old girl next door, Fanny Braun.
Well, that's our brief introduction to John Keats. As usual, I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts.